Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Well, Jeff, it looks like we have an interesting show today talking about baptism. And uh, it just seems, you know, it's one of those subjects where you would think it's pretty straightforward. Certainly the Bible teaching is, but yet it's a, it's a pretty controversial subject, isn't it? Well, it certainly is, and in any number of dimensions. I mean, in terms of, you know, what it is in terms of uh, the element, for instance. I mean, some people may say it's water, others Holy Spirit. Others uh, may point out that uh, who is supposed to experience it. You know, sometimes adults, sometimes infants. Uh, other people may say, well, you know, if it involves like water, for instance, you know, some religious groups will practice immersion. Some do sprinkling, some do pouring. Other groups say, from a purpose perspective, it's in order to have the forgiveness of sins. Others say, no, it's something you do after you've become a Christian. Others say it's to become a member of a local congregation. It's just all over the map, unfortunately, in our religious world today. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting discussion. Yeah, for some, it's it's sort of shrouded in mystery, but the good news is the Bible has a lot to say about it. And to help us with this subject today, we have Alan Hitchin. Great to have you on, Alan, to talk about baptism. I know this is a, a subject near and dear to your heart. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with all of you today. And yeah, baptism is a subject that has become controversial and of course, there's two reasons why things become controversial. They become controversial either because there's not very much information and we're struggling to figure out exactly what the teachings are. And the other time they become controversial is when people start introducing things that they like that are not necessarily in the scriptures. And I think that's the reason that it's so controversial today, because as we go through the scriptures, we're going to find out that God has been as clear as he can possibly be with illustrations, with parables, with what the Old Testament calls types and shadows. He has been clear with commands, and he has been clear with examples of exactly what it is that he wants us to be teaching on baptism. But for some reason, uh, as Paul said, we're not speaking the same thing and we're not perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the, in the same judgment, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. And so we have to examine this. Why is it that a person can go to this church and get this answer and then go to another church and get a different answer? And is that because the Bible is not clear or is that because uh, they don't want to understand it? Good point. And in fact, I think even there's a, a source of some degree of confusion with just the word baptism. And, and, you know, maybe one of the first things we might want to do is, is define what we're talking about. Because, you know, my understanding, you know, from a New Testament perspective, if you look at the Greek word, something along the lines of baptizo or baptisma or something along those, I probably butchered the pronunciation. But when, you know, English translators brought it over into English, they didn't translate it they transliterate they just brought the letters over leaving it somewhat yeah. uh, you know, undefined right and that's an interesting uh story if you think about it because king james of course uh he instituted or he commanded that the that a good bible translation be given to the common people 
and this was done in 1611. And at that time, the various nations had their own church that they were uh, demanding that everyone accept if they wanted to live in that country. And if you didn't accept it, then you could be put to death. And so with Martin Luther, the Lutheran church started in Germany and with the uh, uh, John Calvin in Switzerland, uh, the Presbyterian church got its start, but the Presbyterians would persecute the Calvinists and, or excuse me, would persecute the people from Luther. But then when the church, the Anglican church started in England, then uh, you, you probably know the history of Bloody Mary and, and all of the terrible persecutions when the Catholic Church tried to get back in again and then when the Anglican Church took over. So it was a time of intrigue and it was a time of, of great danger if you didn't preach or teach what the church was supposed to preach or teach. So the Anglican Church has always practiced infant baptism and they have practiced it by sprinkling. And so when the translators came to the word baptism, they were in a real dilemma because the direct translation would be immersion or buried because that's what the Greek word means. When God picked that word, when he sent John the Baptist to baptize, he chose the word burial. And so for, for all of those years, that's how it was translated. But when the King James translators came to that section, they had a choice. If we translate it immersion, then we could we could get into trouble with the king. So they didn't translate it at all. They just left it as uh, baptizo or baptism in the English vernacular. And so when we read that word today, we just we don't have the same benefit. It was John the the immerser or John the barrier, uh, the person who was burying. That's what the word literally meant. But they wouldn't translate it, and that's part of the reason why we have so much controversy today, because it's not as clear as it ought to be. So, Alan, you, so we kind of have two different other elements here real quick before you get into the meat of what you wanted to talk about, as I see it. One is, because baptism is a burial or immersion, and the Bible uses that word, it's safe to assume then it rules out sprinkling and pouring or any other method, right, that is not immersion. And the second thing is the purpose of baptism, right? What, why do we need to be baptized? So maybe just at the beginning, we can just level set those two things real quick and then move on from there. Okay. Well, in the day when the Bible was written, of course, the Greek at that time was called Koine Greek or the common Greek, common man Greek. And when a man witnessed a ship sinking in the ocean, then he would use this word. When uh, a man had a dead chicken and he told his son to go bury the chicken, he would use this word. Uh, this was the common word for immersing or bathing or washing or burying something. And so there was no other real meaning to the term at the time. And as we, you know, of course, Jesus could have changed that. He could have changed it to immersion. But... We, we see critical indicators. For example, when Jesus was baptized, it says, coming up out of the water. Well, why would he go down into the water and come up out of the water if they were going to sprinkle him? It just makes no sense. We, nobody does that today. Uh, if you're going to sprinkle someone, you don't take them down into the water. But that's what they did. And then when 
the Ethiopian eunuch said, here's some water, what hinders me to be baptized? It says they both went down into the water. Then he baptized, which means buried, and then they both came up out of the water. And then the third thing that helps us understand that that this has to be a burial is Paul's direct statement in Romans chapter 6 that we were buried with him through baptism. And how can we be buried with him if we're being sprinkled? We're not being sprinkled with him. Jesus wasn't sprinkled into the tomb. He wasn't poured into the tomb. He was buried in the tomb. And baptism is the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection. And so for those three reasons, the definition of the term, the fact that all of the examples uh, indicate that it was a burial, and because the in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll get to in a moment, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised again on the third day. And we all understand exactly what those three things. Then in Romans 6, when Paul says, we died with him, we were buried with him, and we were raised with him. Well, the direct correlation is too easy to understand, and so there's really no reason to uh, to change the basic meaning of the term because it's used in exactly that context. <clears throat> so it sounds like during that time, it would have just been understood that baptism was a burial. And this idea or pictures you see sometimes of the sprinkling and pouring, that, that those methods, if I recall correctly, didn't come around until what, like the third century or something like that. Is that, is that a correct statement? Well, it's an interesting, again, an interesting historical perspective. Uh, we read that starting in the second century, which would be uh, the 100s, you know, we don't, when we talk about today, it's the 21st century, even though it's the two, 2000s, and last century was the 20th century, even though it's the 1900s. <laughs> so about 150 to 200 AD, uh, they started teaching that baptism should be put off because it was such a powerful ordinance and it cleansed sins. And so they, they were teaching that, that it would be better to wait. Well, one man waited a little too long and he could not be buried because of his health. And so at that time, they, they, started, they started the sprinkling. And later, uh, when they also made a decision, of course, Paul says, I was alive apart from the law, and when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died, which means that he was not born dead, he was not born a sinner, but they started teaching that we are born with inherited sin, and we need to baptize our babies and of course, you can't bury a, bear, a baby in the water because it'd be too dangerous. So the, the sprinkling became a uh, just an established custom in the church, probably from about uh, maybe 200 A.D. until the present. The Catholic Church practiced uh, sprinkling and infant baptism. And then when Luther broke away and the Anglican Church broke away from the Catholic Church, they just continued those practices. It's interesting, while you were talking, I went over to the internet and found a couple interesting references. One was, at least according to this website, uh, the first case of a substitute for baptism, at least according uh, novation in the year 251 A.D. 
evidently, like you were saying, uh, quote, he was seized with a threatening disease and was baptized in his bed when apparently about to die. We were over 200 years removed from, you know, apostolic teaching at that point. Right. Uh, and allegedly, according to the same website, uh, there was no such authority for such an action, and the event set off a controversy throughout the whole church. Um, that website goes on to say the first general law for sprinkling, uh, allegedly written down in 750 under Pope Stephen II. Yeah, definitely uh, not from the beginning. Right. And and that's the interesting thing. If you do, a, a, as you've done on the Internet, if you do a study, you can see the the evolution. And I guess that's what I'd have to call it, the evolution of baptism from a very simple ordinance of Jesus died for our sins, was buried and was raised from the dead. And we are immersed in the water of baptism for the purpose of dying with him, being buried with him and being raised with him. And then, as you say, in in 250, they changed the method. Then, I, I don't know the exact date, but it wasn't too long after that, they started baptizing infants. And so when the Protestant uh, culture came out of the Catholic Church, their goal was to reform, not to restore. And so we call it the Reformation because they wanted to reform the Catholic Church, which means they didn't want to go all the way back to the Bible and start from scratch, but they just wanted to reform those parts of the Catholic Church that they either didn't like or that they didn't agree with. And so many of the errors that have come down through the centuries are still uh, ingrained and established into the culture. But if you carefully read the scriptures, you'll find out that the scriptures don't really have any controversy. It's a very simple subject. God made sure that we, if we wanted to know the truth about baptism, it's very easy to see. And I hope by the end of this discussion that many of those who are listening will, will see how clear the scriptures actually are on this subject. Well, I know, at least within the New Testament, Alan, some people will point to like Acts 2 or, or sometimes the Great Commission of you know, Matthew 28. And talk about that being the, you know, introduction or the beginning of quote-unquote Christian baptism. But that's not really where it started, is it? No, and, and that's a, a an interesting uh, situation. Uh, I, I look at it, it's similar to circumcision. God gave Abraham circumcision hundreds of years before the law of Moses was actually uh, given. And yet it continued unbroken throughout all of the Mosaic age. And so God essentially did the same thing with baptism. He didn't introduce baptism through Jesus. He introduced baptism through, quote, John the Baptist. And John is called the Baptist because that was the ordinance that he introduced to Israel. You can find no indications whatsoever of anything about baptism anywhere in the Old Testament. God, it was silent. It just, it was not introduced. But, you know, if you begin in, in Mark chapter 1, I really like this verse in Mark chapter 1 because it really helps us to lay out most of the concepts behind baptism. And John's very clear that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ did not start after the crucifixion. It started when John started preaching. And John is actually the first prophet of the New Testament age. He is not, and, and, and I guess you could say the last prophet of the Old Testament age. But 
When the Pharisees came to John and asked him, why are you baptizing? It's because there was no authority for it in the law. So they asked him, where did you get the authority? And they even asked Jesus that, or Jesus actually asked them that. Uh, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Because Jesus understood that his authority was the basis of baptism, not the law of Moses. And so what John says is the beginning of the gospel. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So Mark, the Holy Spirit through Mark, is making it clear that the gospel began with the preaching of John. And so John's role as the forerunner, he is the messenger before Jesus' face, and he will prepare your way before you. And in Mark, or excuse me, in Matthew and, and Luke, it's, it's described as he's going to be essentially the road builder. He's going to bring down the mountains, he's going to raise up the valleys, and he's going to make a highway for Jesus to walk. And so the fulfillment of that in verse 4 is John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, this is the first time anywhere in the history of the world that the term remission of sins and baptism are tied together. And it's done by John, not because John's baptism is going to continue into the New Testament age, but the concept of baptism is going to come or going to continue into the New Testament age. And so God wanted it clearly understood from the very beginning, John's initial preaching, he was preaching baptism, a baptism of repentance, and he was offering remission of sins. Then verse 5 says, all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by John in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So the Israelite nation was very much aware of baptism long before Jesus said in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to, the, to every creature. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. Well, that's not the first time Peter or John or any of the apostles had heard that. They'd been hearing it for three and a half years. And of course, we also learn that John was preaching and baptizing. And when Jesus started preaching in John chapter 4, uh, he also was baptizing. So the baptism that Jesus started, or excuse me, that Jesus incorporated into the preaching of the gospel was already well understood. And when Peter preached that sermon and they said, what should we do? It didn't surprise them at all when he said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, because John had been preaching a baptism of repentance for remission of sins. So if we're careful and we read everything that the Bible says about John's baptism, then we know it's water because he baptized where there was water. He baptized them in the Jordan River. Jesus was baptized and coming up out of the water. So the water is definitely the element, and immersion is clearly the method because God chose the word baptism, which means a burial, and God also, through Jesus, Jesus came up out of the water.
Well, he came up out of the water because he went down into the water when John baptized him. And since the word baptism means a burial, then they would all understand that. And so there's really no controversy that baptism is in water and that baptism is a burial and that baptism is for remission of sins. It's been, it was preached since John started his preaching. And so if we lay that foundation before we get into what the, what the, right, what the apostles are preaching and we understand that this was the foundation they were building on. So that's very helpful. Because I also found uh, John 3.23 to to build the case even more. Uh, John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem because there was much water there. If you're going to sprinkle someone, all you need is like a teacup. Exactly. That's not what that passage would indicate. The other thing I find it interesting is concept is not one of, well, if you just take a person and plunge them in the water, forgiven. It's also connected to repentance, not just, you know, dunking someone and, and that's all you need to do. It's connected with a repentance. Uh, in fact, I think there's other passages that even during John's time, there was that they were to believe on he who was to come, also connected to belief as well. So it's not very in isolation, as some might claim. Right. And and clearly, it could not have been a, a, a an infant baptism, because they were confessing their sins. So these were people who could talk. These were people who could hear and believe, and 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 would be able to repent, because this was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So, if God had intended for baptism to be for infants, then these statements in the earliest part of the gospel. And, of course, Jesus incorporates that when he says in Matthew 16, preach the gospel, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. So, clearly, Jesus expected uh, belief before baptism. Baptism itself, the immersion, is not where the power is. The power is in the faith and then, of course, baptism is simply the proof of that faith. Like James said, faith without works is dead. Well, faith without baptism has not come to life yet. And so, again, there's a wealth of information in John's baptism. Uh, in John chapter 4, it says, When the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making more disciples than John by baptizing them, uh, and then when Jesus again repeats that, go into, excuse me, in Mar Matthew 28, when he says that the gospel, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. So the same thing, Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, is how it's worded with John's baptism. And so when Jesus repeats that, the apostles completely understand. And if we have that background, then when we read his words and we understand what they were thinking, thinking when he said those words, then, like I said, the controversies start to strip away. It's not infant baptism. It has to be a believer's baptism and a repenter's baptism. And it's not sprinkling. It has to be an immersion. And it's not in the Holy Spirit. It has to be in water. And all of these things are made clear long before Peter gets up in Acts 2 and preaches that first sermon. And when they ask him, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of your sins 
And then in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 and 41, it, it concludes by saying, those who received his word, or those who gladly received his word, were baptized. And there were 3,000 people that day who were baptized. And so, again, controversies drop away one by one as we look at the scriptures that help us to define and understand. And, and let me make be clear, the baptism of John is not the same as the baptism of Jesus, but it's similar. And many of the things that John introduced to Israel, Jesus kept in the uh, when, when the gospel was finally sent out into all the world in its finished form. Yeah, we, you know, whatever direction you guys want to go in, I'm just trying to, you know, strip away controversies one after another. No, Alan, I appreciate you pointing out the, the difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism, because that reminded me there was actually an account uh, in the New Testament where some of John's disciples were baptized a second time. I don't know if I want to say rebaptized, because there was a difference. You want to expand on that a little? Yeah, I think that's a, a very important point. Clearly, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, but Jesus' baptism is uh, a little bit different because of what we read in the book of Acts. As we go to Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul encounters some people who, are, uh, who have been baptized with John's baptism, and he makes a clear distinction. He makes it very clear that there is a very large difference between the baptism of Jesus and John's baptism. And so in uh, verse 3, he asks them the question. In Acts chapter 19, verse 3, he said unto them, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And in verse 4, Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So Paul is very much aware, just like we are, of Mark chapters 1 through 3 and Matthew chapter uh, 3. And, and of course, in the book of Luke, we all have an account of John's baptism, that he preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. But he was baptizing to prepare the Lord's people, to prepare the people so that when Jesus came, he would be able to do as much as possible, as quickly as possible, because John had already done a lot of the initial work. And so uh, when they heard this, when they heard that John's baptism was a baptism pointing forward to the coming of Jesus, in verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so there's clearly a difference between John's baptism and, and Jesus' baptism. And I think Peter made that point. The people that Peter preached to in Acts chapter 2, they'd already been baptized with John's baptism. Most of them had because that's what, Luke's, that's what Mark said, that all Judea and Jerusalem had come out to him to be baptized. But that baptism was not the same as the baptism that Jesus did because we learn, for example, I think what's important is for us to understand the very essence of the gospel. So let's, let's take a quick look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because Paul there reveals 
the gospel he preached, the gospel they believed, and the gospel that saved them. And, and he uses those terms. So let, let's turn over and just quickly look at uh, chapter 15, where Paul starts out, I make known to you the gospel which I preached, or I declare to you the gospel which I preached, the gospel which you received, the gospel in which you stand, verse 2, by which you are also saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, this is what we look back on. John was pointing forward to uh, the, the coming of the Messiah, but the gospel points back. And as Paul says, I'm going to boil down and give you the distilled essence of the gospel. This is the nature of the gospel. This is the basis of the gospel. This is the gospel which I preach to you. First, Christ died for our sins. Of course, we understand that. He was crucified. He died, and with his death and the shedding of his blood, remission of sins are now made possible. And then in verse 4, he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, this is the basic essence of the Gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what I find fascinating is that in Romans chapter 6, Paul uses those very same three things, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he uses those same things to describe the power of baptism, the, the essence of baptism, and the realization that it's only through baptism that we can become a part of the gospel. So I'd like to read a couple of verses in, in Romans chapter 6. So uh, let's go ahead and turn over there. And in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, it says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Now, it's interesting the way Paul words that here, because the expectation that Paul has is, of course, we know that. Paul's writing to the church that exists in Rome, and he's writing to all the disciples there, and he makes it very clear that in the first century, everyone knew that baptism brought us into Christ's death. And so the essence of the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the church in the first century, they were very much aware that baptism was intimately tied to that death. As a matter of fact, we can only be baptized into his death by being buried with him in baptism. And that's what he says in verse 4. Therefore, since we know the answer to this question, we were buried with him through baptism. Now notice the we. Paul admits, and, and we see this in Acts chapter 22, where Ananias says to Paul, Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Well, what kind of baptism was that? Well, it was a baptism in which, as Paul says here, we were buried with him in baptism, or through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So the tie between the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and baptism 
dying with him, being buried with him, and being raised with him is the essence of the gospel. He goes on to say in verse 5, we have become united together in the likeness of his death. In other words, if you lay baptism on top of the gospel, they are, they are identical. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the dying with him, being buried with him, and being raised with him in the baptism. And so we are. Uh, we, we are joining with him in this. And so, again, another controversy laid to rest. Is baptism necessary for the remission of sins? Well, let's ask it this way. Do we need to die with him, be buried with him, and be raised with him in order to be saved? Well, clearly we do. Well, faith alone can't do that because God has given this ordinance of baptism as the necessary steps to show our faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection by dying with him, being buried with him, and being raised with him. And he says exactly the same thing. Let me just quickly quote uh, Colossians chapter uh, uh, 2, and we see Paul saying almost exactly the same thing there uh, as he says in this verse. So if we quickly look at uh, Colossians 2 and uh, verses 12 and 13, he says again, buried with him in baptism, in which, which is in which, while we're under the water with him, we are buried with him in baptism, and while we're under the water, it says, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead, in your trespasses, so that's why we die with him, we're dead in our trespasses. Uh, but when we are buried with him in baptism, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. So here's another controversy laid to rest. Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Well, some people say it's because you've already had the remission of sins. But this verse says, when you're buried with him, you're dead in your trespasses. And when you're raised up, when you come up out of that water, then you're made alive together with him and your trespasses have all been forgiven. So again, God, he makes it as clear as he can because I think God, God, of course, can see the beginning from the end. And I'm sure that God was very aware of what was going to happen to the ordinance of baptism, that all of these things were going to occur. And so, and he knew that the devil was going to try to make this ordinance very difficult to understand. And so he put all that information about John's baptism and he put the information about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how baptism imitates that so that we wouldn't be confused about this subject. Uh, and I personally find it interesting that you would you know, link in Romans 6 because sometimes we get questions to the website you know, if, if Jesus died on the cross for our sins and you know we've been forgiven of our sins, you know, our past sins, present sins, and future sins. Why do we need to repent once we become a Christian? And I know that's that's another point of controversy, but even within Romans chapter 6, Paul is pointing out that some people might say, well, you know, now that we're Christians, maybe we should continue to sin because the more we sin, the more God can 
give us and God can exercise his grace and show his grace. And Paul says, absolutely, positively not. May it never be. Because we, in some ways, have been, you know, as as you said in Romans 6, died to sin. We shouldn't continue in it. Not that Jesus and baptism forgives us of all future sins, that we should, you know, completely stay away from it. Well, and that's an interesting uh, point. When we look at the context of Romans chapter 6, which means the Romans 6 is in the midst of the entire book of Romans. And what Paul does in the book of Romans is he gives us a comprehensive view of how he says in chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And then, starting in chapter 5, he shows that when Adam sinned, Adam set a set of circumstances up that would lead to his offspring also choosing to sin. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, I think verses 12 and 13, that death passed to all men because all men sinned. Then in chapter 6, he introduces baptism. And then, as you say, he also introduces the fact that we can't continue in sin so that grace may abound. Then in chapter 7, he describes himself as a dual being, a being with a spiritual nature that wants to serve God and a being with a fleshly nature that is in rebellion against God. And he actually says the flesh cannot be made subject to the law of God and we have to put to death the the flesh. Well, there's only one way to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and that is initially through baptism and then through repentance and confession. And that's why Paul commends the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 because their godly sorrow made or led them to repentance after they had sinned. And of course, maybe the most important passage in this, in this context would be 1 John chapter 1, where John says uh, that... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But if we say we don't sin, we don't have any sin, because after we've been baptized, we don't have to worry about sin anymore. He says we lie, and we do not practice the truth. And then he goes on to say we make him a liar, because God never taught that. God never taught that once we're saved, we're always saved, or that sin doesn't matter after we become a Christian. Every sin has to be repented of. Adam committed one sin in the Garden of Eden, and Eve committed one sin, and it brought death. And when we committed our first sin, it brought death. After baptism, when we commit a sin, it too brings death. Uh, In Ezekiel chapter 33, God deals with this. He says, in the day that you commit a sin, all of your righteousness will be forgotten. And in the day that you repent of that sin, all of your sins will be forgotten. And so we have to understand that we have to live in the present moment and that God's expectation is is that we will hate sin, that we will try to remove ourselves from sin, and that we will uh, go ahead and take care of those sins, first by changing our mind in repentance and godly sorrow, and then by confessing that sin to God. And the word confession means to speak the same thing. I committed an act that was a violation of God's law, and now I admit that to him. This was a violation of your law, and I'm very sorry that I did it. Yeah, and Alan, maybe we can also talk just briefly about 
some of the confusion in the religious world being caused by the idea of belief only and you know some bibles for instance have the sinner's prayer in there where it just says that all you have to do is believe and so when you think about some people rejecting or being resistant to the fact that they have to physically be baptized i think as you've shown there's a direct link to the likeness of the death burial and resurrection of christ uh, the, the Bible uses terms about walking in newness of life or putting on the new man. Uh, these are all things that happen clearly after somebody's baptized. Uh, but can you just talk briefly about also how there's this confusion in the world because some will look at a passage that says you just have to believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And they just don't understand, well, well then why do we do this physical act? of burial in water, if all it really takes is belief. Right. Well, that's a, that's a very, very interesting question. And the only way I could answer it is just to, to pretty much summarize some of the things we've already said. Jesus said to go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation or to every creature. Paul said, the gospel I preached is that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. Now, Jesus told the, the apostles, you cannot baptize them until they believe. So go into all the world, preach the gospel to the whole creation. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. Peter takes that information in Acts chapter 2 and preaches the gospel. He preaches that Jesus was a man approved to God, of God by the miracles he performed. You killed him, and God raised him from the dead, and now he's at the right hand of God exalted, and God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Then they said, what should we do? And he said, repent. And the Greek word repent means to change your mind. You've got new information now, and it's time to make some changes in your thinking. And so repent and be baptized. So if we incorporate uh, Mark 16 and Acts 2.38, we see that preach the gospel, he that believes and is baptized, and then Peter says repent and be baptized. So clearly we have hearing the word of God, hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, repenting of our sins, and then being baptized, as Paul said, to join with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. So when, when James says things like, you need to understand that faith without works is dead. And then he says, Abraham was justified when he offered up his son. And so God's much more concerned. If you look in Hebrews chapter 11, it was by faith that Noah built an ark. It was by faith that Abel offered a sacrifice. It was by faith that Abraham left his home. And it was by faith that Moses chose to be called uh, a child of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So actions speak of our faith. Without actions... If, if I've often illustrated it, if, if I knock on your door at four o'clock in the morning and I say your house is on fire and they say, we believe you, but come back in the morning and we'll get up then. Well, <laughs> I, I, I look at that. And I, well, if you believe me, you're going to have to act. So God has said, preach the gospel, 
and the gospel preaching. You remember the the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in in Acts chapter eight, and the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, which is a perfect verse. It talks about the uh, curse, or excuse me, it talks about the the suffering servant who was going to die for our sins, and he knew nothing about the gospel. And as they're going on their way in the chariot. Uh, they he preaches the gospel to him. It says from this verse he preached Jesus to him. Now what I find fascinating is is we don't get to hear anything about the sermon, but suddenly the eunuch sees some water and he says, "Look, there's the water. What hinders me from being baptized?" Well, my question would be, how in the world would he equate uh, baptism with the preaching of Jesus? Well, Philip gave him that information. So the preaching that Paul preached and the preaching that Philip preached and the preaching that that Peter preached all ended with baptism. And so the true preaching of the gospel, uh, you know, you read the sinner's prayer, but the sinner's prayer is in the front of your Bible, but you can't find it anywhere else in the Bible. It's not there. Uh, Jesus never offered salvation based on prayer. Jesus offered salvation based on hearing the gospel that I died for you, I was buried for you, and I was raised for you, and then hearing that because of that you need to repent of your sins and you need to confess me as your Lord, and then you need to join me on my cross, in my tomb, and in my resurrection. And so we have this, again, this controversy comes from people who don't know the gospel. Paul said, the gospel that I preached is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the gospel that Paul preached, don't you know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him in baptism. So the result of the preaching of the gospel is faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. And without those four responses to the hearing of the gospel, We haven't obeyed the gospel, we haven't heard the gospel that Paul preached, and we don't understand the answer to the question, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? Most people in the religious world today, if you ask them that question, they would have to say, no, I don't know that. That's never been taught to me. But yet Paul said, this is, he wasn't even expecting any other answer, but yes, because he knew he was preaching it, Peter was preaching it, Philip was preaching it, Uh, All of the apostles, everybody in the New Testament church was preaching that. So it wasn't a controversy in the first century, and there was no such thing as this uh, sinner's prayer in the first century, uh, because in the pureness of the original preaching of the gospel, God was very clear about what the gospel was and what baptism is. Well, and to your point, like in the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached and they said, what should we do? As he pointed out, verse 38, you know, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In fact, even Paul in his life, when he was converted from being the Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted the church, Ananias told him, you know, after he was given his sight back, arise and be baptized. This is Acts chapter 22, verse 16, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So the scriptures are very clear about the purpose of baptism, right? For the remission or the forgiveness of sins. Exactly. 
That's exactly right. Well, Brian, I think you I think you make a good point because you know some people will come to the New Testament and they'll find a verse uh, like John three sixteen, a very famous verse: "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, have everlasting life." And they may read that and go, "Aha! See, there is." association of belief and everlasting life or salvation hence belief only but as Alan has very well pointed out can't just camp on one verse you have to look at the totality of what the testament teaches on any subject especially this one and when you do you see it's a composite some verses will mention belief, some verses will mention repentance, some confession of you know, Jesus, uh, Acts 10, uh, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus believe and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So belief, repentance, other verses, you know, link in baptism. Even other verses talk about, you know, linking in living faithfully, even after your baptism. So it's not just one verse that you have to, or can camp on, so to speak, but you have to look at the totality of the teaching not to be misled. Right. Yep, that's exactly right. And, you know, Jesus made a good point in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, but only those who do the will of my God or my Father in heaven. Well, it was by the Father's will that John came and preached this baptism of repentance. It was the Father's will that Jesus say at the end of his life, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. So it was the Father's will that faith and repentance and baptism all are integrally tied together with the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. First, we believe it. Then we accept it and we change our mind about sin because Jesus has shown us how terrible sin is by having to leave heaven and come to this earth and be nailed to a cross. And now I'm repenting because I see how terrible sin is and I don't want to ever commit it again. And so then I'm willing to confess, as John, or Paul said in Romans 10, 9 and 10, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So what are we confessing? that Jesus is my Lord. And then what's left is I want to be immersed with him, to die with him, to be buried with him, to be buried in his death, to be crucified with him, and to be raised with him. And so it's a package. And God's will clearly states that. But men come along, and that's what Jesus said. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, in Luke 6, 46, if you're not going to do what I say? Well, what did Jesus say? He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and the ones who believe and are baptized will be saved. And he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So baptism makes us disciples, and baptism joins us to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So to remove that from the gospel is to, you know, Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, I'm, I'm amazed that you're so quickly removing yourself from him who called you to a different gospel, which is not another gospel, only there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he says this, he says, but though we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel, then the one we preach to you, let that individual be accursed. 
So when I hear someone preaching a gospel that doesn't have baptism, the gospel that doesn't have the will of God in it, then I know, as Paul said, you're preaching a different gospel, and therefore you're, you're going to be accursed. And so this isn't something to be taken lightly. We don't have the right to preach a different gospel than the one Jesus revealed to us. And again, uh, in so many ways, God has tied baptism to the gospel. And it's fascinating. We, We talked at the beginning about these types and shadows, which means those illustrations or parables that God has given. And so Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that baptism is the antitype of Noah's Ark. Now an antitype is the true spiritual reality. Just like as Jesus said, as they raised up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And so he makes a correlation of this is, I'm the antitype, and that that brass, brass serpent that they looked at and were saved for, after being bitten by a serpent was the type. Well, Noah's Ark is the type, and Jesus' baptism is the true spiritual reality. Well, what happened with the Ark? Well, Paul or Noah told them, if you don't get on the Ark, you're going to drown. Well, Peter said, baptism is like that. If you're not baptized, then you're going to be lost. And so these are the kinds of things that... Again, controversy can be set aside with the knowledge of the truth. When we all speak the same things, when there's no divisions among us, when we are perfectly joined together in the same mind as God's mind, because we are listening to his revelation, then we're safe. But when we start changing the purpose, the, the, the method, the, the mode, the element of baptism into something different, then that's not the gospel they preached in the first century. And if we listen to a different gospel, then we're going to be accursed just like the people who are preaching it will be. And in some ways, it's it's sad because of all the controversy surrounding baptism because, as you've indicated, it is in some ways the last step of becoming a Christian, of starting that relationship with Christ, of having your sins forgiven, and way in many ways that it's about today, it's keeping people from taking, in many ways, that final step uh, and leaving them thinking that they're just fine in belief, uh, or maybe even to include repentance, or maybe even to include you know confessing Jesus. It's incomplete. It's partial. It's it, it hasn't got you across the goal line, and that's that is most unfortunate. Right, and you know Jesus reveals that again in that passage we were talking about in Matthew chapter seven. It, it, after he says, "Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord," he says, "Many will say to me in that day." Uh, and then he talks about they will say to me, "Lord, Lord, didn't we perform many mighty works in your name?" And then Jesus says, I will profess to those many disciples that I never knew you. And I've thought a lot about that verse because they clearly know Jesus. They're saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus says, but I never knew you. Well, they clearly believe 
because they're talking about Jesus and all the works that they've done in his name. So how could he not know them? It doesn't say, I knew you, but I forgot you. It says, I never, not at one moment, did I ever know you. And, well, what could it be that kept them from him not knowing them? They clearly believed they were clearly serving him and working with him, and they thought that they were his disciples, but... But they didn't do the will of the Father in heaven. Well, that's right. And what was the will of the Father in heaven? Well, Jesus said, make disciples, baptizing them. Well, how many churches today are making disciples by baptizing them by immersion for the remission of sins and to be buried with him in baptism so they could be raised with him and they could walk in a new life. Well, these people had clearly not done that. They were trying to walk in a new life without obeying the ordinance of baptism. And Jesus said, I never knew you because you never were with me. I were never, you know, another verse we haven't really dealt with is the one in Galatians chapter 3 where Jesus, I'm sorry, where Paul says that we were baptized into Christ and we put on Christ. So baptism is what puts us into Christ. And if we're in Christ, then we are part of his body. You know, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And who's that one body? That's the body of Jesus. If I've been baptized by the proper medium and mode and purpose, then I'm going to be in the body of Christ. And Jesus could never say, I never knew you. So it's fascinating. Again, as we tie together all of these threads that God has given us regarding baptism, controversies just slip away one by one, one after another. And then all you have to do if you want to be saved is find the people who are preaching the same gospel Paul preached, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the baptism in which we are buried with him, raised with him, crucified with him, and joining him, becoming one with him. And so it's just, a, it, as I said earlier in the lesson it, or in the, in the discussion, it's just so disconcerting to see how Satan has deceived the world. Because they're not teaching the truth on baptism, Jesus is going to have to say, I never knew you. You were never, ever apart with me because Satan has decoupled baptism from the gospel. And very few churches today are preaching it the way that John preached it, and Jesus preached it, and Paul preached it, and Peter preached it. They're preaching a different gospel. And as Paul said, it's not another gospel. They're perverting the true gospel. And it's just so sad. It's like what would happen if uh, we are having a meal and somehow some poison got dropped into the meal that we didn't know about, like those prophets in the days of Elisha who put that poisonous gourd into their, their porridge. And they said, there's death in the pot. Well, there's death, unfortunately, in the teachings of the gospel that do not incorporate every facet of the Father's will into it. Well, that concludes part one of our discussion with Alan Hitchin on baptism. Please stay tuned for our next episode where we will continue to talk to Alan about the different elements of baptism and why it's so critical for Christians today. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. 
we invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.